Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Donald Trump might have officially launched his 2020 campaign at an Orlando MAGA rally last month. But it didn't really feel real to me until last week. That's when Trump went all in on racism as a campaign strategy. Representative Ilhan Omar. If you're not happy here, then you can leave. You lift David Duke's words and Donald Trump's words, and I guarantee you, you can put them together. You can find David Duke tweets. Are quotes that sound just like what Donald Trump's been saying the past couple of days. It turns out it wasn't just the talking heads on MSNBC thinking that Donald Trump was sounding an awful lot like a former grand wizard of the KKK. It was a guy named Tim Wise, too. I mean, I'm an anti-racism educator and, and author, and, and that's about the only way that I can describe it. Back in the early 90s, Tim thought he might get into political consulting. His first job was working against David Duke's campaigns for Senate and governor in Louisiana. I was really young. I mean, I had just come out of college and um, and I happened to be at Tulane in New Orleans. So I was in the right place at the right time at the very right moment. You know, my work in politics literally is limited to the anti-Duke work, uh, essentially, in 90 and 91. And it was that that actually, you know made me realize I needed to be doing anti-racism work full time rather than sort of political consulting. Looking back on those days, do you feel like you were naive about things? You know, maybe less than some, but more than some, too. I mean, I, I think I think we learned really quickly some things that a lot of folks didn't understand um, about racism and po- particularly its usage in politics during that time. In some ways, David Duke is nothing like Donald Trump. Looking back at video of him from the 90s, he looks mild-mannered and rehearsed, the opposite of a freewheeling Trump rally. But his intent is pretty clear. It's not a question of being against minorities at all. It's simply a question of, of making sure that our rights are also protected. That if we're going to have civil rights in America, we must have civil rights for everyone and not a chosen few. I mean, this was someone who was a Nazi. It's not a word I use lightly, but it applies in his case. And he was still able to get six out of 10 white people to vote for him with a message that was explicitly about racial scapegoating. And so I think there were a lot of people who didn't expect that that was going to happen. There were a lot of people who said from the beginning when he won the state legislative race, oh, you know, ignore him, he'll go away. Ignore him and he'll go away. That was a popular approach to Trump last time around, too, which is what makes Tim worried. When he looks at the presidential race right now, When he sees the candidates debating Medicare for all, national daycare and free college, he's like, what are you guys doing? Stay focused. You know, I'm very concerned about the approach that the Democratic Party and the, you know, 711 candidates that they have um, are taking. What I think they, they don't get is that you cannot 
defeat something like Trumpism with policy papers. So if this is where we are as a country, fighting a racist president, Tim Wise says he's got a political playbook for us. And it looks pretty different from what the experts are recommending in Washington. I'm Mary Harris. You are listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So let me start here, which is you say there's this direct comparison between Donald Trump as a candidate and white supremacist David Duke in terms of how they campaign and what they're saying. I really feel like a lot of people would say that's a bridge too far. Uh What would you say to that? Let me be clear. I'm not suggesting that Donald Trump is the literal equivalent or even the political equivalent of David Duke. David Duke is a national socialist. David Duke is a Nazi. This is someone who used to literally throw birthday parties for Hitler every April 20th with beer and and cake and chips. Like literally, that is an actual story. But, but what I am arguing and what I would suggest is that both Dukeism as a movement and Trumpism as a movement tap into the same vein of white racial anxiety and resentment. Now, in Duke's case, I think he did that because he has always, for his adult life, been a true believer in white supremacy, white nationalism, and frankly, the creation of an all-white America. Donald Trump, I think, came to this very differently. Do I think that he has a long history of racism? Well, yes. But I would say that Donald Trump came to his politics of white racial resentment mostly because he understood it as a marketing tool and he understood it as a way to gain power. And that's really Donald Trump's primary thing is Donald Trump. But when we're trying to figure out how do we respond in this moment, learning from how we responded in that moment becomes very important because it's this, that what drives the movement is the same, even if what drives the men is different. You say it's instructive to look at David Duke's campaigns for public office as a comparison to where we are now. So in 1990, David Duke ran for U.S. Senate in Louisiana. Right. Where were you at the time? So I was uh, on the staff of the Louisiana Coalition Against Racism and Nazism, which was the political action uh, committee that was formed for the purpose of defeating him in that race. I started off as the campus coordinator, organizing all the college groups against Duke, uh, and then later would become the associate director about a year and a half later. Um, And this was a coalition that was put together. It's very interesting. Um, The organization was founded by a combination of sort of liberal folks, progressive folks on the one hand, that's certainly what the staff was. But the board of administrators also included um, some very solid Republicans, but Republicans who understood the existential evil of white supremacy and Nazism. And so it was not always a comfortable coalition. We didn't always agree on everything, but we understood the threat that was posed by hatred or what we call the politics of prejudice that David Duke was running on. But what's so interesting is you say you understood that hate was the problem. You needed to fight it. But what kind of arguments were you actually making to voters in that first race for Senate? 
Well, it, uh, there's there's the argument that we wanted to focus on, and then there's sadly what we ultimately ended up doing because of the advice of some consultants that I think was frankly not good advice. So if you were to ask myself, certainly most of our board members, especially the more progressive ones, and certainly my boss, the director, Lance Hill, um, who led the organization, we understood we need to stay focused on Duke as an extremist. Not only was he still tied to neo-Nazi individuals and organizations, but his whole politic was a politic of racial resentment and racial scapegoating. And so we wanted to say, hey, he hasn't changed from his days in the Klan. He's just repackaged it. He's playing upon white fears. Here's an example, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. There were mainstream consultants who came in. These are Democratic Party and Democratic candidate, traditionally consultants, who came in and they were very nervous. Uh, they, they obviously agreed, yes, you have to talk about his Klan past. You have to talk about his ongoing connection to Nazis, obviously. But they were very worried about anything that would focus too much attention on his contemporary racial appeals. Why? Well, uh, here's the thing. So, for instance, David Duke focused a lot on welfare as the reason that people's taxes were too high and affirmative actions, why white people can't get jobs and immigrants are taking jobs and all that stuff that you still hear today very often. And we wanted to talk about that as part of this larger politics of prejudice and sort of shifting attention from the real problem and blaming black folks for things they didn't cause. And the consultant said, you know, Problem is, if you do that, you play into his hands. And there are a lot of voters, especially white voters in Louisiana, they said, who agree with him on those things. So if you if you mention that stuff at all, to any real extent, you're going to ultimately help him. And so they said, focus on the Klan, sure. Focus on the neo-Nazism, sure. But then they also said, you need to do other things. Like, for instance, talk about the fact that he paid his property taxes late, or talk about the fact that he avoided service in Vietnam, or talk about the fact that he once wrote a sex manual under a female pseudonym, which yes, as a matter of fact, he did, as disturbing as that is. And unfortunately, I think we fell for that. And I say unfortunately, because you know, here's the thing, if you're dealing with a Nazi in this case, or just any kind of a racist, and you're taking time to talk about you know, when they paid their taxes or did they go to Vietnam or did they write a sex book or something, it undermines your core point. You're trying to say this person is an extremist who is beyond the pale of rational discourse. When you throw all that other stuff in, it allows voters to say, well, if he's really such a Nazi, why are we talking about his property taxes? And even though he lost, he did lose, thankfully, he got 44% of the vote, including 60% of the white vote. And I think that was because we didn't focus in on the core message in that campaign, in the Senate race. You know, you described the night that David Duke lost mm -hmm. and how your boss was speaking, I believe, to the press yeah, and said, tonight was a referendum on hate and hate won. Right. If Duke lost, why did you end up thinking that? Well, because when a Nazi... Uh, an actual honest to God Nazi can get six out of 10 white people to vote for them, 605,000 votes approximately. And yet, you know that there are not 605,000 Nazis, for goodness sake, in the state of Louisiana. Then what you know is that that the politics of hate have triumphed. Dukeism has proved itself to be a force far more potent than a lot of commentators gave it credit 
and it and it allowed David Duke to have the political energy going forward to run for governor. If we're able to defeat him crushingly in that first race, he's gone. He's done. But we didn't. And for all intent and purposes, Duke himself said, I won my base. And he was right, right? He got six out of 10 white people. He didn't care that he lost black New Orleanians. He knew he was going to lose black New Orleanians. He knew he was going to lose black folks generally, but he got the people he cared about. That buoyed him. That provided, if you will, the yeast that allowed his political bread to continue rising the next year when he ran for governor. How did you and your boss change strategies when David Duke ran for governor? So the next race, we decided that the focus needed to be on the threat that Duke and Duke is imposed. And so rather than talking about, you know, Duke's late tax payments, the sex manual, the Vietnam thing, all of these other sort of sidelight issues, we really focused in on the threat posed by hate. And so, for instance, in the Senate race, we had run this very fancy, ridiculously expensive television commercial where a lot of these side issues came in and it was too clever by half. You could tell it was a commercial intended to win an award. In the governor's race, we stripped it down. An audio recording, which we had dug up, of David Duke from about five years before this time. So the election was 91. It was a 1986 recording where David Duke was being interviewed along with another open Nazi. And this other Nazi says in the, you can hear the other Nazi's voice. He says, you know, Hitler started with seven men. It doesn't take that many people uh, to start some ruling. You know, Hitler started with seven men. Right. And Duke responds, right. And don't you think we can do it, too, if we just put the right package together? Don't you think it can happen right now if we put the right package together? Don't you think that there are millions of Americans who are alienated and are looking for something? And the truth is the truth. And give them something to believe. We just had this audio play and, and, and we did this on radio thousands of times, the Democratic Party used the same recording, did their own commercial on television. And all it was, it wasn't fancy, it wasn't stylized. It was, the only visual you saw was like a reel-to-reel, old reel-to-reel recorder and the voiceover with the captions of David Duke saying this. That was the focus. It wasn't all this other stuff. And the reason that we wanted to do that was we felt that's what's going to drive turnout One of the problems in the Senate race was that black turnout was actually down and white progressive turnout was down. I had arguments with white liberals in the Senate campaign in 1990 that said, oh, I'm just not going to vote because, you know, uh, the the, the opponent, Jay Bennett Johnston, who was the Democratic uh, incumbent senator, he's in the he's in the pocket of the oil and gas industry. He's just a corporate shill. He's no better than Duke, because apparently some people can't tell the difference between a corporate shill and a Nazi, which is very disturbing. So they were both sizing. Yeah, right. Exactly. It was just sort of like, well, I'm not, you know, lesser of two evils is still evil and I'm not going to participate in evil, you know, whatever. And so. In this particular race, I think by focusing on the actual evil in the room, I mean, the true existential evil, a lot of those people who had not voted were like, holy crap, we really got to vote. And black turnout ended up actually being higher than white turnout in the governor's race, which is almost unheard of in that state at that time. And it's very rare generally. Why? Because the threat was clear. It's interesting because... You also say that you basically abandoned people who voted for Duke the first time around. Right. You saw them as kind of a lost cause. Here's the thing. I mean, it's not that people don't change, but 
what changes them doesn't happen in the course of a couple of weeks or months in a political campaign. So I'm sure that there were Duke voters who regretted their vote. I'm sure there are Trump voters who do. But the reality is most people who vote for someone who whose politic is so extreme and rooted in in hatred and bias are not going to in the short run. They're not going to acknowledge the horrible moral error that they made, because doing so requires them to say, oh, yeah, I voted for a monster the last time. So David Duke, he loses the race for governor, too. But the metrics are so different, where you have way more turnout among progressive people, among black people. Yep. But this other thing happens that I found really disturbing, which is you talk about how some Republicans like Pat Buchanan looked at the David Duke playbook and said, hey, we should all be doing that. That's exactly right. I mean, Pat Buchanan writes an editorial shortly after the governor's race and says we should be copying David Duke's winning playbook, which, of course, Buchanan then does in his run for the presidency in 92. And he he got a lot of traction with that. You know, he 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 helped move as much as anyone. Pat Buchanan did the Republican Party towards this party of ethno-nationalism and white racial resentment when he stood up at the 92 convention in Houston and gave that culture Friends, war speech. He's wonderful. And these wonderful 25 weeks of our campaign, the saddest days were the days of that riot in L.A. Worst riot in American history. And as those boys took back the streets of Los Angeles block by block, my friends, we must take back our cities and take back our culture and take back our country. God bless you and God bless America. Uh, It didn't get him the presidency, but it changed the party uh, in a fundamental way. It moved, it began the move of the party from a politics of dog whistling to a politics of, of much more open articulation of racial resentment so that now here we are all these many years later and we're talking about not dog whistles we're talking about bullhorns and that begins with duke it is given the imprimatur of support from buchanan and now we see it manifesting in donald trump so you're an anti-racism activist and educator i found it really interesting listening to you talk about the strategy of just kind of abandoning the people who voted for the nationalist and just focusing on the other people to come out. Because something I hadn't heard you say before is how people change, but they don't change that fast. Yeah. I mean, for instance, I was actually in an email conversation with my old boss at the coalition, Lance Hill, today, and he was reminding me that many, many years after the elections, he was talking to someone who had been doing some research trying to find people in Louisiana who would admit to having voted for Duke. And they couldn't find anyone. Like they literally could not find white people who admitted doing what we know 675,000 of them did. Now, if you had asked them a year afterward or six months afterward, or probably even five years afterward, I think you would have found plenty of people who said, oh, damn right I did. But all this many years later, folks have sort of selectively become a bit ashamed. And I think 
it's really important to just put a fine point on this and just explain how the timelines are really different from the electoral timeline to the change your mind, change your spirit, change your outlook timeline. That's maybe a decade. And changing your vote is something different. At least. And I think there are very few politicians who really understand this um, because we sort of I, I don't know. We, we Well, I think, think they're scared that, of losing. Right. They're they scared are. of losing. They are. But the irony of it is in their fear of losing, they are opting for strategies that actually aren't always helpful to me. Those of us who are progressive have three possible audiences to whom we are speaking. One are the people we're trying to convert The other are the people we're trying to mobilize who were already on our side. And the other are people who were trying and sort of in the middle to inoculate against whatever poison the other side might be thrown at them. And the strategy for each of those is going to be very different, right? I think that we spend a lot of time on the conversion piece because people really think that's where the action is. Oh, they just assume that their base is going to show up. Well, as we've learned And people of color in particular have been trying to explain this to Democratic candidates. You can't continue to take us for granted and just assume, oh, we'll show up and vote for anybody with a D behind their name. You can't assume that progressive people are going to do that because some are going to say, well, forget that. I'll go vote third party or I just won't stay home. That'll be my way of protesting these awful choices that I have. You have to have a clear, uncompromising message or some of the people who you think you already have, won't be there. I have this theory that there's this older generation, boomers, that remember what happened to Martin Luther King and they remember what happened to RFK. And it's created this fear in them about movements like this, that they aren't controllable and that once you start this conversation, it triggers a backlash, they can be dangerous. And that those people... In that generation, they're the people running newspapers and television stations. Yep. What do you think about that? I think you're very right. I think that there is no doubt that some of what we're experiencing right now is a backlash to the modern world. It is what Carol Anderson at Emory University refers to as white rage, right? Historically, every step forward for black and brown peoples has been met with this backlash. So it's inevitable. The idea that we can avoid it by not talking about it or not confronting it is belied by the entirety of American history. The only way you can avoid it is to not make progress toward racial democracy and pluralism. So if we believe in racial democracy and pluralism, we have to walk through it. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying is basically the Democrats are afraid that by waving this racism flag around, they're going to somehow have a backlash. But the backlash is already happening. It's yeah, it's in full effect. Remember, Barack Obama was called racist for including in the health care reform legislation. There was a there was a line item in there somewhere that raised taxes on tanning beds by like, I don't know, by like 10 bucks. Right. Because tanning beds lead to cancer. And it was just a way to try to improve health. And there were right wing talk show hosts who literally said this was a racist tax on white people because only white people use tanning beds, which isn't even true. But that was their argument that, you know, they accused the black guy in power of racism for anything that he said. If he criticized the cop who stopped Henry Louis Gates going into his own house and arrested him, 
right? Oh my God, that's an attack on white people. Glenn Beck said, you know, he hates white people. All the, you know, Rush Limbaugh said he's just trying to pay white people back for slavery. Oh, the healthcare reform bill is just a reparations bill. Like they're going to do racist backlash based not on what our side does, but based on the fact that we're living in a society that is multicultural, that is pluralistic, and they aren't down for that. And as long as we intend to be that multiracial pluralistic place, they're going to be doing this backlash. It's not even backlash. It's frontlash. And the question is, are we going to respond to it or are we going to run from it because we think, oh, God, you know, America is so inveterately racist that we can't win challenging it. That's an incredibly pessimistic message. I happen to think better of the American people than that. And I think most people, even people that have implicit and subconscious bias, don't want to endorse the politics of hatred and division that we see, you know, tearing the country apart right now. Tim Wise, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you bet. Thank you. Tim Wise is an anti-racism speaker and author. He lives in Nashville. And that's the show. If you are hungry for more, go check out Mike Pesca's show, The Gist. Today, there's a very special episode of Is That Bullshit? His regular segment with Maria Konnikova. The topic is, is it possible to keep off weight once you've lost it? Insider tip here, Mike is ridiculously physically fit, so maybe he has some genuine tips here. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. Do you have a thought about the show or a thought about the news? Just tweet at me. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. Talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 